0: So, this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye.
1: I did it!
2: All right, let's go. <laughs> I did Welcome it too. to feature creep I mean settled. <laughs> oh right. Uh um Built in microwave. Some, Some microlake. Uh
0: transhumanism number three. We finally did it. We are uh, doing it right now where it's happening.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um Yeah, so let's uh let's get into it. Um where where did we pick up from? So last time uh, if you're following the series, um, not that you must um, or that it's that together, but we've been trying to kind of make them progressive. Um, last time we talked about uh, kind of we continued this discussion around transhumanism. Um, we talked about using technology to improve our own biology through design in order to improve the existence of humans. Um, and then that was it kind of the overall, that's the overall theme. And then we're talking, we talked about last time, I think we talked about, um, kind of the history of transhumanism and the people who uh developed the definitions we're using today um also possibly talked we talked about alzheimer sharks but that's you know a digression or a diversion or a tangent i don't know it was possibly related anyway um trans (laughs) transhumanism too uh which i believe we published on the fourth of uh january 2021 so that's uh if you're interested you can go back and have a listen to that one um yeah so here that brings and us up to yeah go ahead
3: i owe you two an apology because i fell down on my executive assistant job i well, have listened to transhumanism one but not transhumanism two
0: it's okay i yeah. mean i think you can like get or not get a lot of this podcast and you end up in exactly the same place. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. I think all it means is that if I manage to say something that got said in Transhumanism too, you should just oh. say we've already talked about this. We'll have to move on.
2: I, yeah, well I will
3: not
0: remember.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say you're not the only one who's gonna fall to that particular folly. Um I'm pretty sure oh, yeah. we're gonna repeat ourselves several times. Um yeah, there's uh uh, yeah um
0: maybe maybe for our tagline for the podcast we should change it from like narrow and hate focused to redundant narrow and hate <laughs> <focused>. <laughs> how
2: about like redundantly narrow and hate focused
0: <laughs> yes, perfect making it into an adverb yeah adverb, um exactly. <laughs> so yeah so when i did the outline for the thing today i i didn't do the outline i just lifted the outline right from wikipedia because wiki's fucking great and it's a for it's a lovely place for like somewhat superficial discussion Yeah. they organize things well and there's lots of links and things to follow. So I just basically piggybacked theirs or just – I just imported it into our notes. So there's um, five uh, – four things that we'll talk about, um, th- the theories of transhumanism, the aims of transhumanism, uh, empathic fallibility, and also the ethics of transhumanism. And so the first – uh, the first sort of section is the theory um, and there's some debate over whether transhumanism is a branch of posthumanism, and whether or not the philosophical movement should be conceptualized with regard to transhumanism so posthumanism is a philosophical movement, and people are trying to figure out how that relates to transhumanism <clears throat> or what the relationship between them is. Um, so like religious frameworks would place um transhumanism as a subsection of posthumanism um the it says here that a common feature of transhumanism and philosophical posthumanism so something that both of them share is the the idea that um humanity or humans in as individuals will eventually evolve into a separate species, um, a separate intelligent species, and that uh, will either render humanity obsolete or will just totally supplant it as a new thing, which I find a kind of interesting. I mean, I guess, like, when you think about the fact that we are not, we're homo sapiens, we're not the same species of human as Neanderthal, but it's, like, in that case, it's not really I don't know that it's necessarily fair to say that who who has gene- who's genetically related to Neanderthals? anyway, that's a whole other separate conversation.
1: Yeah I I'm trying to quite fits the
3: theme today, but
0: right I, mm. I, I well, mean, I'm just thinking like in terms of how species evolve, and like Ned and I talked about how you differentiate one species from another genetically and scientifically yeah. like, mm-hmm. taxonomically. and so I'm trying to think like if the claim the the sort of Christian um, conservative and progressive critics are claiming that transhumanism, or like a, co- a common future, is that transhumanism will supplant humanity as we currently know it. I'm trying to make sense of, of that.
1: I-
3: so, yeah. the thing that popped into my head, and a-, a quick amount of Googling says it's not just my head, but whether that mm-hmm. gives it any serious validity is up for discussion. Right. Is if we define humanity. By its limitations, we age, we die, we forget. If transhumanism is designed to counteract those failings, mm-hmm. then the possibility exists to have something that was human, but that isn't human anymore. But I think that only works if you define humanity by its failings, right? Or by its things that you would try to counteract with transhumanism. And I'm not convinced that that premise is super valid or unbiased. Mm. So I don't, I don't mean to necessarily endorse that definition, but I, right. I could see how you could get from one to the other using that framework.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh,
2: yeah. Um, I, can you say that again? Your, the first part of it, I, I wasn't quite... I'm not sure I fully understand what you're saying.
3: If you define humanity yeah. by its limitations, right? Humans die. Humans forget oh. things over time.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Humans age. Mm-hmm. Um, humans can only carry certain weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, we could keep going, right?
2: Right, right.
3: If, if transhumanism is designed to counteract or get rid of those failings, at some point, participation in the transhumanism mm-hmm. movement yeah makes you fail to fit the definition of human that because is, you don't you do those really things well.
2: right right okay yeah i see what you're saying um yeah and i i i tend to agree with you and i think that's um yeah i mean it is i was actually just kind of when we were talking about when when you, I think part of the reason I was having trouble following you is my mind was like wandering into its own tangent of which I think is in line with what you're saying. Um, which I was thinking about how the, the issue is like at some point you're making these decisions to, um, move into the transhuman space where you're like, like talking about like modifying yourself or, um, taking a cognitive action to change the course of like natural evolution by, Um, making some direct like human man-made modification to your own biological destiny, um, and so the question becomes like there's sort of a a sort of value system of like whether that's better or worse, um, you know, like like you said, like whether you're kind of talking about like oh because I can lift more and now I'm better or I'm I'm more superior. All of those are like a very narrow kind of like value system. Um, And I and I don't I'm not saying Dana, that's what you're saying. I'm saying like within the context of that, that thinking is like I'm like thinking about it and thinking, well, the really interesting thing to me is that this is transhumanism kind of reflects this um, this nature of being human, which is that we're as far as we can tell, um, we're the only species at least on planet earth that we're aware of that has such a direct cognitive effect on its own evolution. Like we mm-hmm. can make really like for one thing, um, just to sort of as a species, how much we modify our environment, um, versus our environment modifies our behavior to be, you know, in a like a lot of species. It's like over time, their, their species evolves to fit, a certain, like, biological niche or a b- particular kind of environmental factor. Um, that's not to say many species. I mean, you look at, like, ants or bees where it's, like, they heavily modify, like, their home environment, right? And so they mm-hmm. create this, like, artificial safe space. Like
3: beavers!
2: Yeah, or beavers. <laughs> um, the, it's just how we're able to, like, so critically think about it and have this, like, sort of cognitive basis of, like, being like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the decision to, um, you know, make this biological modification to myself, or make this like transhumanism movement to move away from like standard human.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm and also.
0: Oh, sorry. Go on.
3: I, I was just going to say again, like the fact that I can understand why you would say transhumanism is posthumanism doesn't mean I think it necessarily is, and it sure. hinges on a really specific definition of humanity. Like, I actually do think that there are some interesting questions in there. If I can pull up a digital representation of everything that my eyes have ever seen... I'm not sure that I am still human and I'm not sure how my brain handles that. If I don't die, I'm not sure that I am human and I don't know how the world handles that.
1: Right. But if I
3: can lift twice as much weight as I could before, I'm probably still human, right? Like (laughs) there's this huge range of things that we can alter
0: and you have to decide that humanity hinges on one of those things. This is like, for me, this illustrates what I was like. I think we were both thinking kind of the same thing at the same time. For me, this sort of elucidates a tension between the differences like what what separates transhumanism from just extreme performance enhancement like Mm -hmm. is it some kind of a like uh, a margin of error like if I can double my strength is that still within the realm of possibility of humans that we would call it merely enhanced but not an inhuman amount of strength like where do you draw the line um, And to make it a little bit weirder,
3: and this touches a little bit on something that you, you folks were discussing in Transhumanism 1, just in the sense of, like, are you testing things out on yourselves or are you testing th- things out on your offspring? One of the ways of thinking about it is whether you've modified yourself or whether you've modified your genes. Mm-hmm. So, like, I could switch out one arm with a prosthetic that could carry more weight. We're Mm -hmm. not that far away from doing that, but were I to have children, my children would have normal arms, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. I could alter my genes to cause myself to build up muscle faster. Mm Mm-hmm. And depending on how I did that, my children might also be able to carry more weight. Right. Um, so to me, there's also this huge category of like, how are you getting that change? How old are you when you decide on that change? Does that change get passed along to anyone else? Like, mm-hmm. it seems like those might fit in that kind of question about how we define humanity. Sure. But I don't know.
1: I-
0: yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah i um i mean i like whenever there's discussion of categorization and like in definition of terms um my mind often spins off into just like more fundamental questions of like you know how does one even categorize like so quickly my mind like goes down the like the rabbit hole of like what does it even mean like what does anything even mean um what does it all mean (laughs) (laughs) um but i think that uh I think that it's, it's important to recognize like there's value in being able to categorize. I mean, that's kind of the big part of our language and the way we communicate It's for us Mm -hmm. to like agree on what a term means and then continue to have that so we can continue to have more discussions about other abstract ideas. Um, I think one of the useful for me, one of the useful kind of anchor points in this discussion is kind of going back to the science of. Um, or like a biological slash science definition of what a species is in um, in the sense that... So uh, I have this, I'll kind of paraphrase quote from, or I'll paraphrase from nature.com and the definition of, of a biological species, um, which is a group of or- organisms that can reproduce with one another in nature and produce fertile offspring. Um, and so... We talked about, I think in one of the previous ones, we talked about ring species, which is kind of an interesting, like Mm, it immediately takes this definition that seems to have hard boundaries and then smear it all over a nice gray spectrum, Um, (laughs) which is kind of where I think transhumanism comes in a little bit. It's like for me, I think um, I think a lot of the stuff that I've read now, the idea of transhumanism is often conveyed as a trans uh, uh, not transhuman it's conveyed as a sort of transition space that has very fuzzy boundaries um and where post-humanism is much more hardly hard defined as um the biological space where if you exist as a post-human you can no longer um create viable offspring with your Um, with your ancestor right or your Hmm. your sort of your standard human but i like i don't see that actually playing out based on the fact like based on what we're learning about biology and the point being that it's like um I think that by the time we reach post-humanism, our definition of what we are as a species is going to be so different that this, this, this idea that we can't like someone could choose to be in a, like have a biological standard human body for much of their life. And, mm-hmm. and then the idea of what procreation is and creating a viable species or a viable fertile offspring is entirely skewed by like what we define it at, like what does it even mean to exist as a being right um like you know assuming things like being able to kind of upload your mind into a you know um a, some other digital space or some kind of like virtual space or um the idea that you could kind of transgress tra- transition from one body to the next and things like that and kind of maintain your sort of um cohesive memory chain of of existence um
1: mm-hmm.
2: i just think like in terms of those it's like well <laughs> Maybe the species definition is not actually that helpful. Um,
0: Yeah. It becomes insufficient.
3: It also makes me think of, and he was a flake and kind of not a very good professor, but I will quote my anthropology professor in college. um, We make the definitions, right? Mm -hmm. So for years, we defined tool use in a particular way, and we took great pride in the fact that only humans did it. And then at some point, we found a couple of species who met that definition. And what most anthropologists did was change the definition of tool use to something new that right. we only do. Right. So uh, I, I feel like, to some degree, we should assume that the definition of what it is to be human will not be what it is now sure. by the time that any of this stuff comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know that there's consensus about it now, much less... No. By not. the time that this comes to fruition when we've added a million other questions about that definition. Right.
1: right.
0: Yeah. Like uh, the next thing that I was going to talk about is um, like there's a, there's a concept of cultural post-humanism which actually addresses relationships between humans and machines. And then there's also um, the... Transhumanist self characterization Of transhumanism as a Continuation of humanism and enlightenment Thinking and Then again there's also Secular humanists who conceive of transhumanism As an offspring of the humanist free thought Movement and Say that the only difference here Is that transhumanists differ from the Humanist mainstream because they focus on Technology as a solution or A resolution to human concerns um, Which is closely Aligned with technocentrism and uh, they also focus on the issue specifically of mortality. So I guess that tra- it, t- to answer kind of or or refer back to what we were saying a little earlier, like I, I, apparently that tran- transhumanists would say that issues of mortality are something that are issues of concern for them. And so I think like definitely the big existential questions would fall under uh, uh, that transhumanists would probably address big ex- existential questions as part of their logic structure. I don't know. Um, anyway. Uh,
2: no. Yeah. I mean that, yeah. Like that's, um, that's a big part of, uh, I mean, we really got into the weeds really quickly here, didn't we? Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, that no, that's no, not at all. That's uh it's, there's, that's the whole point of other,
0: it. Like, yeah. And there's other people too. Uh, it says here, they just, it's, it just lists as progressives. Yeah. Who have argued that <laughs> post humanism, um, regardless of how you think about post humanism, what it amounts to is a shift of way from concerns about social justice and toward more, um, self centered, uh, attempts at transcendence, um, hmm. which is a, a really interesting thing to contemplate i guess i Mm had like it seems so obvious as i'm as i'm reading about it and contemplating it now but it's not something that i ever arrived at as a question that i had prior to right now like yeah
3: Mm -hmm. the other thing that occurred to me or the question that came up to me as we were talking is um ned you were talking about Basically, interbreeding, right? Like, it yes, is the definition of a human and a transhuman or a human and a transhuman that they can no longer interbreed, right? And what I then wondered is at that point, do we assume that humanity ends because it's so much better to be the improved version, or do the two exist in parallel? And then, if the two exist in parallel, it seems like we have two different options. One is kind of artisanal human, right? Like, I yeah. know it's like. like the amish right or um i know it's not as good i know i could do more but there's something fundamental here that i don't want to give up and it's important to me so i'm going to stay here the other less fun one is poverty right like it costs money to improve myself and i may not be able to
2: right um
3: but it it seemed to me like there's it's probably foolish to assume that just because the transhumanism movement could make you quote better that means that you will outcompete all of the humans by default right away or in any sort of a fast
2: yeah so i manner. i mean there's a lot to unpack there um there's Sorry again. no I no no need to like further into the weeds. i think you touched on a lot of the things that i think about like one of the questions of course is competition so um purely from a sort of survival competition point of view um if that's if that's the um if that's the reality of transhumanism then it's gonna be messy and difficult right because um you're going to have pe- like entities competing against each other and, and there's going to be an arms yes. race and all of that. Um, there's Put a pin in that. Cause yes. I've
0: got something to say about that later.
2: Okay. Um. There's also the issue of um. Like, like, I think what you were kind of alluding to or what you're saying. And I think we're, we're kind of seeing the same thing here or thinking about the same thing, which is that um, it's an issue of choice. Like if in an ideal world, your you have the choice to be in any of these states you can be in you know in the more conventional transhumanist post-humanist state of you know heavily modified let's just say you know robot body or whatever or some some kind of construct versus a sort of quote natural existence of the standard human right or as -hmm. you kind of eloquently put it the um the sort of boutique or what What did you use that? I
3: think I said artisanal artisanal. Human. Yeah. Like the artisanal,
2: <laughs> like having <laughs> the artisanal so human. like human experience. Right. And, um, I think for me, I think that a big part of transhumanism is about having that self, um, autonomy and choice to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like I would argue that there could be a place like we maybe already live in a sort of transhumanist, existence which is that we have not everybody as you pointed out there's these financial barriers and like practical barriers where it's like no you may not not have access to this but um but some people live in that space where they have access to quite a lot of um ability to genetically and physically modify themselves in ways that they see fit to make themselves feel or represent as they feel right um either externally or internally um you know i mean a lot of like you know, we live in a world where we have access to more and more drugs that modify even your own mental thinking, where it's like, you can have more say in how you feel every day and how you experience the world. Um, So I don't know. Anyway, I I just feel like that you touched on some great things there. So Meg, you wanted to put a pin in that and maybe come back to the, uh,
0: what? Yeah. So what this reminds me of is when uh, like the, um, the pharmaceutical arms race, Yes, for mentally performance enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. And so, like, uh, th- like the kids in your high school get Dexedrine and Adderall because they ha- and Ritalin because they have ADHD, and then somebody else realizes, like, well, I don't have ADHD, but I can think a lot faster when I'm taking those, and oh shit, my SAT scores go up. So now, if you're not prescribed those you have to go into a black market situation to obtain them because the kids who do have them are going to outscore you on the sat and so you're bound into like it's it's a it's an it's an arm it's it's exactly an arms race it's if you are forced out of competition by the omission of those substances or those modifiers or whatever then you're either going to be in a permanent underclass or you're going to go to a, a black market scenario to obtain the same competitive advantage
3: interesting I've never thought of it that way with Adderall in particular in part because uh, the only time that I ever experimented with Taking it, it made me feel awful and I was in no way more productive or more likely to score well on the SATs. So. Fair. <laughs> I have never felt any pressure. Um, I also, the people who I grew up with who were on Adderall were still noticeably harder to deal with and I think got less mm-hmm. attention from their teachers. So I feel like you could maybe make the argument that like.
1: Interesting. That
3: might have made their lives a little bit better, but there was still enough social issue that they didn't necessarily do like better than everyone else by default sure uh, just because i can think of counter arguments to the situation that you brought up doesn't mean the situation that you brought up doesn't exist it just means there are a couple of different ways that that can play out
0: yeah let me let me rephrase because i think you're right so let's say there's two people who don't uh, like i don't need adhd medication because i don't have adhd but if i take it i can like it boosts where I normally am up in terms of how quickly I think and how many separate chains of thought I can have going at one time and how much output results. But it's like a, it's like a, it's a bell curve, right? It goes Mm -hmm. up and then it it like shoots up and then it's like a steep drop off after that. So Mm -hmm. like Adderall specifically, I don't necessarily know that I would advocate anybody take it unless there's a really good reason. But, um, Anyway, uh, I just recall through direct experience that there were ripples of panic amongst the overachievers in high school when it was clear that some overachievers were able to get their hands on stuff that would make you potentially perform better. And when you're talking about kids who are like, trying to outrace each other it's like oh it, it, can can it boost my score from 1380 to 1410 on the SAT then I'm going to like risk it you know what I yeah. mean because yeah. these are the kids who are under high pressure to high perform anyway yep. and so i just see that becoming maybe the in, like in that particular example the influx or the the pathway to acquiring is through kids who need it for medical reasons. And kids who <laughs> don't need it for medical reasons are like, I'm going to Harvard. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Or like they are seeking out a competitive advantage, maybe. It it would be very difficult to judge without revealing who was taking drugs illicitly to pass the SATs, whether or not it was working and by how much, right? Um, yes. But But for sure,
3: there are people who tried that strategy and who at least anecdotally feel like that strategy is what got them their SAT score. Like, I don't think there's any arguing
0: about that. Yeah. Yeah, So I I can just see that translating into like a a whole bunch of scenarios where some other competitive advantage becomes available. But the access to it is a classified or a racialized or like some other uh, genderized like access point. And so Mm -hmm. anyway, Workarounds. Well, (laughs) I I feel. Yeah, go ahead. I feel like
3: it's a little bit analogous, and we're getting into seriously hinky social territory here, but I feel like it's a little bit analogous to trying to figure out how to integrate uh, trans individuals into competitive sports. Because you absolutely have an undeniable difference in, say, muscle mass that is altered through the some of the medications that are being taken or some of the processes that are being undergone, but they're not being altered so completely that the person in question necessarily fits easily into either of the Mm -hmm. existing sports organizations that they want to participate in. And the possibility for this to happen in a million different ways across a million different uh, fields not just competitive sports it, it seems pretty clear when yeah. we're talking about transhumanism and the ability to enhance anything from strength to intelligence to uh, length of existence uh, i guess lifespan was the word that i was looking for there um, Yeah, <laughs> whatever 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 it is that we're increasing or that we're messing with
0: yeah
2: i, I mean i think this brings up um kind of uh, like you know if if we kind of step back a little bit and look at the the sort of bigger picture of it, which is that um, the question becomes uh, the issue of co- like the nature of competition in within ourselves, right? Like, you know, we're in com- competition with other species as a species. We've won that fight pretty well. You know, I mean, the time will tell whether we won the fight against microorganisms or not, but um, you know, we continue to exist. And, and so I think this kind of goes, this, this links this, uh, our transhumanism series with um, designing dystopias, which is to say that um, yeah. when you create a very competitive space like that, uh, somebody wins and somebody loses. And mm-hmm. um, when you artificially try to flatten the playing field, which is arguably a good thing for various reasons, um, and and maybe not, I mean, that's a whole different discussion. But when you try to artificially flatten the playing field, there's always... Um, incentive for people to find ways around that because it gives them an edge when as long as it's competition. Um, I can think of some situations where that actually is maybe so in sailing there's, um, there's something called one design racing where the idea is that everyone races the exact same boat design um, hmm. so that it's very equitable. And so the only mm-hmm. place to really compete is in your ability to sail that kind of vessel. Um, mm-hmm. ah. and um this works really well when the community is focused on having fun, competitive races and the the sort of the competition is somehow removed from resources of survival, right? Like it becomes um I think generally in the racing community, I don't know if you guys have been following the um, America's Cup, but recently. Mm-mm. So mm-hmm. the the U.S. boat had like a major wreck and all the, <sighs> the other two teams basically showed up and gave all their resources to make sure it didn't sink so they could c- continue to compete mm-hmm. in the future races because the whole point of it is that people want to have they want to have that sort of that kind of competition as opposed to um and so as soon as the playing field was so skewed that they're like well that's not fair like everybody stopped and is like okay let's let's make sure they get what they need so we can all get back to doing the thing we want which is having this very tight close race um Mm -hmm. that's obviously not the case in schools and in our sort of competitive societies like i
0: our liar meritocracy (laughs) yeah um
2: and so i just think like it's a it's a i I don't have an answer it's just clearly a problem um that transhumanism doesn't necessarily address, and it does raise that issue of like you know when you're able to so enhance yourself that you can out compete everyone around you and give yourself basically superpowers um what does that mean for so like you know
3: I think the other thing that's coming to my mind and it's maybe a little bit of a jump but is when you're talking about competition, do you mean permanent or temporary? Because like, I grew up with a really good group of friends. None of us were very athletic. None of us really cared about being athletic. We would occasionally have a race to see who could run from one side of the block to the other. None of us really cared who won, and usually a different person won every day. Mm -hmm. If one of us had been a competitive runner and that person had won all the time, we probably would have stopped doing it.
0: Because right. it wouldn't
3: be any fun, right?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Because there's no chance that anybody but that person's
3: ever going to win. Whereas, like the sport that I'm in now is horseback riding, and one of the things that you see a lot is someone saying, "I've spent so much money to do this; it's not worth it if I'm not going to win a lot, right? Like if I'm not going to regularly do really well."
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And and to get take that even further, right? if we're talking about competing to get a job or to keep my job in the face of like my company starting to do layoffs, I need to always win the competition or I'm in real trouble. So I feel like like America's cup is that kind of ideal where everyone is on the same page that they all started the race with an equal shot of winning. They all had an equal roughly number of advantages and an equal chance and luck was going to play into it a lot. And at that point the ability to stop and say, "Whoa, something really catastrophic happened to this team. They have absolutely lost their shot in a way that could have happened to anyone and we want to stop and deal with this in a like friendly and competition uh, non-competition minded, really mm-hmm. manner. Um, says that it's that low-stakes sort of competition, which is a ridiculous way to describe the America's Cup. Sorry. Yeah, I no, know that.
2: I, it, the stakes <laughs> but, are high, absolutely. Yeah, it's... But yes, I think your point is well made. Keep, sorry, keep going. It, yeah.
3: it just says that everyone entered the race knowing that they may or may not win. Right. Wh- yeah. Instead of the kind of competition where everyone enters the race feeling like if they don't win, something catastrophic will happen.
2: Right.
0: Um this reminds me of um master chef too which is like one of my favorite television shows the kids version as yes. opposed to the adults version is like way better but um there are so many times like that show has taught me i think the biggest lesson that i've learned from it that i try to actually apply to my own life is that um when it gets down to the like super competitive like the super capable kids Um, they're competitive only because they are on a cooking show where the goal is to sequentially eliminate people until there's one person left who's better than everybody. And the way that they figure this out is by the attrition of people who fail. And so if you... It's not like you can... It's set up in such a way that it's like you're not really... There isn't an expectation that you can outperform each other. There's an expectation that some of you will just inevitably fail at being perfect. And that's kind of like the winnowing down process. It's like, it's very, um, it's almost left up to chance. Like somebody has to make eggs and they just make, they just happen to make eggs better than somebody else. But that doesn't mean they're a better chef overall or whatever. And so there are kids who are just competitors in the adults too, who will absolutely panic and think that they are not going to even make it because the food that they're creating isn't up to the standard that they envisioned in their heads, and when they end up getting judged at the end they're the people who win are the people who fuck up the least, even if they're nowhere near perfect, <laughs> and so it, you just keep going because you never know when somebody's going to drop a plate of food and not have anything to present, yeah, like that could have been perfect, but they tripped on the way there, and so yeah. there's all these like wild cards, and so I just think like oh. Uh, All you need to focus on is not what other people are doing. It's focus on you and just keep going and do whatever you can to get there Um, and not worry so much about how that stacks up.
3: I know it sounds trite, but often the people in those sorts of competitions will say, like, I'm not competing against the other person over there. Yes. Yep. We're both competing to do the best we can. And then the judges get to decide who pulled it off and it will be way more fun if both of us did an amazing job and the judges have a hard decision to make than it will be if I tripped on the way to the table or if he messed up his recipe and switched out the salt instead of the sugar. Right. Like, right. And, but that mentality again is by definition, well, by some definition, low stakes, right? Like you can still be competing for a hundred (laughs) thousand dollars. It doesn't necessarily (laughs) need to be literally low stakes. But there's got to be something in that competition where everyone agrees that no one is going to die if they don't win the game. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, yes. it's too important to win.
1: <laughs> yeah, And
3: you, you're hoping that someone will drop a plate or cause a problem or have some catastrophic failure.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting because um, the other thing that I... Like learned from that particular source of competition was that the people who succeed are the people who can focus on the task at hand and not focus on how they're stacking up against other people as they progress. Mm-hmm. Um Because what got all of those people into that room to compete against each other is how they're able to cook their food. And yes. so trying to show up and looking at the guy who got there for being a good baker and trying to outbake him is going to fail because he got there being a good baker. You didn't necessarily get there being a good baker. You got there being good at something else. And so the focus has to remain not on competing on the terms of someone else that you're competing against, but competing against yourself to do a better job of the thing that you've done before that got you there in the first place. And it's like, um, this is for anybody who's competitive at anything. I think it's like your focus is on yourself and doing the thing you're good at. As soon as you lose focus of that, your attention goes to some other thing that is not the thing that you're trying to accomplish and takes energy away from the thing you actually are good at and competing to accomplish. Yes. And, and absolutely. So like maintaining your focus is it's like a hard but a a, a good one lesson, I think.
3: Yeah. Um so not super transhumanism related, but just I- interesting to kind of tack on to that. This sport that I compete in right now, start, you start your ride with 100 points, and the judges take away points with every mistake you make.
0: Oh, harsh. ah, yeah. Okay.
3: And one of the really interesting things that happened recently was that for the like sixth or seventh time, someone got a score of 100. Whoa, the, whoa, the judges basically said it is impossible for anyone to do better than that. And our competition world has gone completely batshit trying to decide whether or not that's the coolest thing in the world or a sign that our scoring system is terrible.
1: Right. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah.
3: Watching everyone be like, there's no way that that's the best that anyone could ever have done. That's bullshit. Mm. That's not okay. That's not fair. Um, or a hundred? That's amazing. That's so cool. That means that it's worth striving for a hundred because it's actually fucking possible, right? Like the fact that the, yeah. the responses to that scoring have been so different Yeah, to me says a lot about how people think about winning or losing yes. in, yeah. in that particular sport.
1: Yeah, Totally. Um,
3: Although <clears throat> I think that we've just created a framework where the people who ought to be striving for a transhumanism should feel like they don't need it. But then we get into the problem that at that point it's all the rich kids who are just fucking with their own bodies because they have the money for it, (laughs) not the people who would actually benefit from being able to carry more weight or survive a little bit longer or be less likely to get sick. So, like, now I think we've tied ourselves in a little bit of a knot with regards to transhumanism.
2: Well, I think um, one of the things for me that you've really hit on that I think really makes is is a really important point to stress as far as, like, um, a distinction between kinds of competition is mm-hmm. the one of survival versus other stakes. Um, yes, and I think for me, the real big issue for me is, um, is the competition of survival versus not like versus anything else. Um, yes, if if we're competing for. Um, like basically what I'm getting at is like competing for resources that are not life sustaining and like personally part of my, like, you know, my sort of personal inner circle of, of existence, um, less, very not threatening to me, right? Like I'm not a very competitive, I I don't like zero sum games and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of them in this world. So, Mm -hmm. um, I don't you know it's not a big thing for me but um when we're talking about competing for life existence and your right to exist which a lot of people are doing right now um transhumanism becomes much more sinister right Especially mm-hmm. when you're talking about like, you know, um, people who have a lot of money can then guarantee the, their progeny both having lots of money and more power, but also to be both like physically and mentally superior in lots of ways. And so they can just continue to like dominate the sort of economic and sort of social sort of ladders of, of power and wealth. Um,
3: sure. And that's now- where
2: it's, it's trickier. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: An argument that you can make to counter that, at least to some degree, is that technology becomes less expensive with practice. So you could expect that once the rich kids learned how to do it and they'd figured out how to do it more cheaply, that other people would have access to it and that potentially no one would have access to it if the rich kids hadn't gone there. But I, I don't know that that excuses.
2: I my only issue with that is it major feels
3: advantages. It
2: feels very dangerously close to trickle down economics.
3: Yes, <laughs> I I think um, if I see there's distinctions, going,
2: but sorry, yeah. yeah. Uh,
3: to me, yeah. if we're going to assume that the only way to get there is if some rich kid pioneer goes first. I guess that's a price we have to pay in order to move forward, but it sure seems to me like we should be looking for other ways to move forward (laughs)
2: rather
3: than taking that for granted.
2: Right. And I mean, that has, I mean that, you know, at this point we can get into the discussion of, um, like, you know, at least Western culture and our sort of our economic existence and, um, you know, having more disparity versus less disparity and all of those things and whether there's a sweet spot and, you know, all of the issues of like moral relativism of like what's good versus what's bad and like, you know, all of that, like, and I think those are strong arguments. Like I don't, I don't disagree that, um, if we had, I I don't disagree that at least in many ways, um, having a more, um, like communist approach to resource management can stifle the ability to have have exploration of those spaces right like there Mm -hmm. is there is something about a single person having a lot of access to wealth that allows them to do some ridiculous shit um
1: yeah whether that's
2: good or not is a separate question but i don't disagree with you like i think that a lot of the stuff that we have um yeah absolutely like technology is a perfect example that like really the economy of technology scales really well like the more you know, the fact that we can, many of us can have these cell phones um is a testament to the ability to, you know, scale scale technology, right? Yeah. Um,
3: I mean, granted, we're we're all in a category that allows us to goof around yes. on a podcast on a regular basis. But yeah. n- none of us are in a position where we could have afforded the audio equipment that we're using. Right. If it had cost as much as it cost even 10 or 20 years ago.
2: Yes, absolutely. Right. Like, that's a yep.
3: really excellent example. Of yes. Yeah. It, it, of technology becoming less expensive as it becomes more widely used and gets perfected. Right. I don't mean to be the rich kid apologist today, but just to add one extra layer of complication,
1: Hmm.
3: it seems like if I am a rich kid who has a nifty idea to make myself stronger or make myself live longer or make me produce more successful progeny or whatever we want to talk about, I only have two options. And in the current day and age, they both suck which is I can try it out on myself Mm -hmm. and catch flack for being a rich kid who gets to do it when other people are less fortunate, or I can try it out on someone less fortunate and catch flack for using someone less fortunate as my Guinea pig. Yeah. And I don't know how to work around that can, that conflict. Um, I don't mean to say that I have eternal sympathy for rich kids who get to dick around with lots of money, but it does seem like we've painted ourselves into a couple of really interesting corners, culturally speaking, that make transhumanism and competition even more complicated than they would have been without those additional factors. Mm. Yeah.
0: There's a, there's a section here that um, I highlighted that both of you have kind of been circling around and I'm just going to, I'm just going to read it because I think the way that it's written here makes a lot of sense and I'm not going to try and paraphrase it. While many transhumanist theorists and advocates seek to apply reason, science, and technology for the purposes of reducing poverty, disease, disability, and malnutrition around the globe, so in other words, like for the greater good, uh, transhumanism is distinctive in its particular focus on the applications of technologies to the improvement of human bodies at the individual level. Many transhumanists actively assess the potential for future technologies and innovative social systems to improve the quality of all life while seeking to make the material reality of the human condition fulfill the promise of legal and political equality by eliminating congenital, mental, and physical barriers.
3: And just to be clear, that's a quote from Wikipedia's article on transhumanism? Yes.
0: Yes, it is. Um, Cool. So I'm not sure who the author of that particular section was, but I think they're kind of that describes a little bit what we've been like circling around Mm -hmm. and the tension between the many and the one, and who is this serving, and is it it necessary for us to serve the one before we can serve the other? So, like in the case of people who have enough money to access and do things to their own individual selves that could possibly then be developed for broader application to the greater good. Like, are we stuck waiting, like you said, for that to happen mm-hmm. in order for the greater good to be achieved? Or um, is that not even, is, is, the, is the, the greater good not even a consideration, but maybe a byproduct of, an inevitable byproduct of people working on their own situations? Interesting.
3: I think there's a flaw there that <laughs> mm-hmm. assumes that there's a universal definition for this idea of greater good. Sure. Yep. Because I think that we have a million examples of someone enhancing themselves and then taking action mm-hmm. that they feel is for the greater good that other people don't necessarily like, think no, falls under that definition. You. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I, mm-hmm. I do. I think it gets really tricky. I would tend to argue, and Meg, I think you and I may uh, often be on opposite sides of this argument, but I would tend to argue that we've gone so far to the side of worrying about the social applications that we often lose the potential advantages to the thing. Mm. And it. I don't that isn't to say that I don't think that the problems exist or that I don't think that there are there are thorny problems. But like the most uh, the most obvious example that springs to mind right now is uh, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic is mm-hmm. the um total clusterfuck that has occurred with our vaccine rollout. Yeah, it's like there are a bunch of situations where people were given really clear instructions. You are not allowed to vaccinate anyone who is not in the following categories. And then they were given a vial that has 500 doses. And I'm bullshitting my numbers here. But, you know, they were given a vial that has 500 doses that was going to go bad in 12 hours. And only 400 people showed up who were high risk or who were in the allowed category and they threw out a hundred doses of vaccine. We all need everyone vaccinated. That is right. the stupidest thing in the world, right? I yes. don't care if you picked the richest asshole, you know, the top donor of your hospital and gave them a free pass. Community wise, it would still have been better for that asshole for everyone, to get vaccinated. Yeah even though we can discuss yeah. the social issues with having gone to him over gone to your local homeless encampment, right? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I I think that often the people standing there with those vials was too worried about the consequences to giving them to someone who they weren't allowed to give them to.
0: Yeah. To so you paralyzed do the by thing decision. Yeah.
3: Right? To do the thing that would have been greater good in that case.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um and I I have no idea how to solve this problem. Right. Like I don't I don't say that because I think the answer is that you vaccinate the person with the most money. Uh, But I also don't know how to move forward with any of these things if you are so interested in fairness or equality that you lose out on opportunities to protect or enhance everyone along the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's super... um, that's super timely. And like, interestingly, I faced this dilemma the other day because the clinic that I have been going to for a really long time, uh, occasionally will end up with doses that need to be used before people who are technically first in line can get there to use them. And if they Mm -hmm. don't give them to people basically that day, it's going to go bad. And so my My um, health care provider asked me if I would like to be on a wait list of people who live very close by who would be willing to drop everything and rush in if there yeah. was a dose that was otherwise going to go bad. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I'd be willing to do that. But I have some specific concerns about vaccines and also uh like epstein bar like symptoms that I have that make me getting vaccinated a dicey proposition. and so yeah let's
2: let's be clear, this isn't an anti-vax argument. This no, no, is a no. specific this is like a secular... your specific biological so
0: ethically, so ethically, I had to consider like I am kind of a dicey person. I'm not even confident because I didn't even think about these issues really because I I'm not a high risk category person. I'm way down the, the line, like way mm-hmm. fucking down the line. I am not exposed to a lot of people. I can hole up in my house indefinitely, really, because all of my support comes from a localized place. And so I don't have to like ever leave my house if I don't want to, frankly. Mm-hmm. um, So I can avoid having to get a shot for a while. Um, It's fine for like, if you are offered the chance to get a vaccine to save one from going bad, you should take it. However, it's probably unwise of me to jump on that opportunity, considering that I have adjacent health concerns that would make me a potentially bad candidate for this vaccine under any circumstances. And until I can figure that out for sure, I don't want to take somebody else's place in line.
3: And see now I'm trying to juggle the two options. Because on one on the one hand, if you got the vaccine, you could like volunteer or go shopping for your high risk neighbor or like do things that other people couldn't do. On the other hand, if you and knock on all the wood got a vaccine and had a negative reaction and that became a giant press story that stopped a thousand people from getting vaccinated
0: oh
1: god (laughs) i hadn't even
3: thought about that and also before i sound too mercenary and completely inhuman you're my friend and i don't want anything going wrong with you so there's also (laughs) that like i don't want you to catch covid because even the low risk people could get really sick and i don't want you having a vaccine reaction because those can be really serious so you my friend are a dilemma
0: I know. So until I can (laughs) sort out some specific only to me details, I shouldn't take up a place on the list because I may not be a candidate for the vaccine period ever, ever. Um, but I don't know that and I need to figure that out and once I figure it out then it will be really clear whether I say yes or no if I have no medical reason not to get the vaccine then it's clear yes if yeah. I do have a medical reason not to get the vaccine I shouldn't be on the list because the whole time I'm parked there I'm taking up a space somebody else could have for no good reason sure yeah
2: Um. that's all it's I tangent. mean it's yeah like it's a so these are like to kind of bring it back to transhumanism a little bit Um <laughs> This is kind of, um, one of the questions of, you know, anytime you're kind of making changes, you're having like, you know, like, okay, so let me organize my thoughts with, with you, Meg, your situation, um, you're weighing your individual risk against your um, your risks to society because as an unvaccinated individual, you pose a certain level of risk. As mm-hmm. an individual who's, um may potentially have negative reactions to the vaccine, you present acute risk to the institution. So mm-hmm. going at a time when it's very busy and they don't have a lot of capacity to deal with your negative reaction is is a burden on the system when you could have just stayed home. Right. And those are kind of two of the things, like two some fundamental things you're weighing, not, not putting aside other stuff. But my point being is that, Mm -hmm. um, in transhumanism, there's this issue of like everybody there's, there's this thing that's going to happen. I think as the transhumanist movement or call it what you will, as we evolve and we're more involved in our own evolution and people are making more and more decisions about their own biological destiny. I think that, um, we are going to see more and more diversification, right? People are going to choose different paths and Mm -hmm. that creates this issue of, um, the more we're no longer similar and have similar needs, the more we need individual attention and ability to like everybody's going to have very different needs um and that could get worse right or that could get that could get more diversified i don't know that that's bad or good i'm just saying that there may be um whole groups of people who high maintenance what
0: people are going to become really high maintenance in a huge number of different ways.
2: Potentially. I mean, I think even now, like you could argue, like if you look at say like Japanese culture versus us culture, and I'm going to very ham fisted this and make very terrible generalizations because I'm not that familiar with either. Um, But (laughs) I think that, that, uh, or I should say like Eastern versus Western, right? There's a certain level of, Eastern culture that is more accepting of less individual autonomy and resource than there is in Western culture where that's like the, the pinnacle of existence, right? Is this sort of every person in the U S could be the most powerful person in the world, right? Like that's kind Mm -hmm. of the, I mean, I'm not saying that's reality. I'm just saying that's, that's Mm -hmm. sort of a cultural thing that we have in some ways. Um, Yes. And so I agree with that. Yeah. And so if you start reinforcing that with, real biological and physical manifestation, it's going to look very different. Um, Mm -hmm. if your goal is to fit more into society, if you're kind of coming from a culture where it's like, I want to be more like the rest of everybody so that I can use less resource and be more cohesive as part of a whole, um, you're going to make different decisions about your own biological destiny, as opposed to if you're, you know, a, god loving fearing shoot them up motherfucking U.S.ican. um you're going <laughs> to you're going to want to like get arm cannons and like you know tank treads for feet and like you know more capacity to eat more resources and i mean i'm being hyperbolic here obviously but my yeah, point but, being and mm-hmm. i don't really mean to i i don't believe that um americans are that way i just think that that's kind of the hyperbole right like you know mm-hmm. just to kind of pick um Two things and I mean it, my point being is that there there's issues there that are going to be depending on how like part of it is like something fundamental could happen, like we could have um, some kind of like artificial intelligence singularity where all of this is rendered moot because um, it's a moo point um, sorry <laughs>
1: um,
2: because you know it, like you know you have some event where it's like you know drastically reducing population size worldwide or um you know we we make some technological breakthrough where most of this is rendered irrelevant because you know there's a new resource that we're more interested in than time and energy right Um, or
3: frankly because things go bad enough that we stop having money to throw at this problem right which is another thing that could happen
2: sure yeah exactly so um i think that it's uh I think transhumanism is a very interesting place to have these kind of discussions as a framework. Like I'm something I've been one of the things where I was glad we kind of started this whole series in the first place, but
3: yeah, definitely. I think part of what people envision when they talk about this stuff is it, it kind of an inherent system of checks and balances, which mm-hmm may or may not exist, right? Like, Ned, you brought up um, Cyberpunk 2077 in one of the earlier episodes. Yeah. So there's this concept of cyberpsychosis. Sometimes when people get implants, they go crazy and start killing people. We don't really know why. It seems to have to do with the number of implants. It's not super clear how it happens, but you have to be willing to take that risk in order to get an implant. Socially, in that world there would then be an implication that someone with a lot of implants was being a little bit selfish and was taking some pretty big risks. And that pressure might cause you to get fewer implants or to be selective about what you did.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Also, just from a self-preservation standpoint... Once you go crazy and start shooting people, the military comes down out of nowhere and they either kill you or they cart you off for treatment. And it's totally unclear whether or not that treatment is in any way effective or pleasant. Right. Mm-hmm. So from a self-preservation standpoint, it's a dumb idea to get so many implants that you fall to cyberpsychosis because you you lose your your humanity and you don't know what will happen next. hmm. Yeah. If we assume that anything that we might do in the real world will have a similar system of checks and balances where staying purely human gives you the least likelihood of unexpected, unintended, unintended consequences, maybe that's a good enough incentive to be human. (laughs) The unfortunate reality though is that being human subjects you to a bunch of really unpredictable potentially unpleasant uh, things so like mm-hmm. unless tra- the unless transhumanism does none of the things that we hope it will do Mm -hmm. it will probably be advantageous to go down that road because you will probably be less likely to go blind Mm -hmm. go deaf die of cancer right all of those unpleasant things so like Mm -hmm. the fantasy idea of checks and balances or the straight up like economic checks and balances if i can only afford so much may or may not actually come into play the way that we like to kind of cast it or the way that we like to think of it as as a really kind of convenient way to keep people from going totally overboard
0: mm-hmm. Oh, that's kind of that's fascinating oh
2: uh, yeah I, I i like um I it reminds like this, me of like yeah. when you
0: have too much plastic surgery your face just falls off yes <laughs> like yeah. you have to pick what what are you going to
3: do how often are you going to do it how saggy are you willing to get right. how much risk are you willing to accept that your nose might fall off you're exactly right yeah
2: yeah it's um it's so interesting like the issue like as we talk about this i keep thinking about like um there's the specifics like like you know okay if we had a certain level of new biological like you know biomedical advances where we could kind of reach like some level of say like cyberpunk 2077 levels of like body modification and enhancement um and and how like that that would have its own problems whereas like okay but if we were just shoot way past that to the point of like um you know unimagined you know existence changing modifications to yourself, like, um, you know, superhuman enhancements to your mind and the way you think and the way you experience the world and all of those things and how each, each side sort of stage. And I don't even know if the end point of this sort of like trans or like post-humanist, like kind of immortality, um, is a reasonable reachable or even anything what I might imagine it to be. Right. Um, and so the, like, it's interesting, like we have real world problems now with say plastic surgery, surgery, plastic surgery, um, (laughs) being, you know, having its own issues of ethics and individual, you know, problems and how that's progressing and it's better than it used to be. And outcomes are better. And, um, you know, all of those things and, you know, not to, um, leave out like you know the uh the sort of transgender community of like how much they want to both have social impact or like social freedom to be themselves Mm -hmm. but also biological freedom to be themselves right and and Mm -hmm. uh, you know and i can't speak for them so i may be hamfisting this but um but my point being is like it's interesting how um how many like nuanced problems there can be depending on where you are in this Mm -hmm. period of time, like moving through, like we have our problems that our parents' generation didn't have. And you know, the generation coming after us, they're going to have their own issues of, of these same kinds of discussions and problems.
3: I also think the other thing that just occurred to me that's tricky about the whole conversation that we've just had is we are assuming transhumanism by choice, like that this is just something that happens as we get more technologically advanced and as we have more options. Like you
0: opt into it like, oh, I would like to have right. a bionic yeah. arm or whatever. Not like you get to have a bionic arm because you're going to work in a mine.
3: <laughs> right. well, or, and this is, you know, silly sci-fi, but... You know, if there's a meteor coming that's going to hit Earth and we need to upload our consciousness into the tiny, you know, uh rocket that can leave Earth fast enough because mm-hmm. we can't go colonize Mars yet. Like, mm-hmm. right. that's going to be its own form of transhumanism and it is not going to be what we expect. And we will then be deciding whether we do that or whether we die. Right. Like, yeah. that's a totally different set of mm-hmm. math. Um, yes. I think we're we're running into some really interesting uh Comparable situations with climate change, Mm -hmm. where like, we may reach the point where deliberately setting off explosions or trying to alter weather patterns or sacrificing some parts of the land in order to make other parts more livable mm-hmm. is going to not be some like super interesting philo- philosophical hypothetical conversation that we can engage in, but it's going to be live or die. Like we either do that yeah, and maybe we fuck it up and we all die, but maybe we succeed and we don't all die or we <laughs> sit around until we all die. Right. Like, yep. We um, we may find situations where our our hands are forced, and it's nowhere near this nice transition that we get to discuss all day or get to figure out who goes first.
0: Yeah, like I I was thinking about this um, because if you're if you approach the current approach as we just discussed was uh, um, with the excerpt that I read is that transhumanists assess the potential for future technologies, and so they are looking to the future to try to fix fix problems of the past. So when you're eliminating congenital, mental, and physical barriers, you're eliminating something that has been a problem already, and you're trying to stop it going forward so you don't have to deal with that problem anymore. Dealing with future problems by designing humans up to meet the challenges that are in the future is a completely different thought process. Like in one, we're trying to enhance ourselves to overcome something. And in another, we're trying to enhance ourselves to meet the level required to just continue existing. And Um, in
3: all of them, we're making a ton of assumptions about what needs fixing and what could go wrong and what might be needed. And right. Like, right.
2: I mean, I can think of a real world example of how this is happening right now. Um, in the States, we've got this issue of people not wanting to wear masks. And we have this mm-hmm. existential threat of or this external threat of death, um, which is to say, you know, COVID-19 has killed over 400,000 people in the U.S. now and um, as of this recording, I believe. And Yes, you are correct. The question like, you know, what happened f- was that previously we had. No, you know, there was no overriding leadership of our country that said, hey, this is the way it has to be. And so there was no action taken to prevent that. Whereas Mm -hmm. now um, we're in a situation where it's like, "Okay, everybody has to wear a mask. That's it. That's the law. Right. Like that kind of thing, which is a far cry easier than everybody has to be killed and have their consciousness uploaded into a rocket and (laughs) leave the planet. Um, And
3: we can't even manage. Everyone has to wear masks.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And that's my point is it's like, you know, this is a very temporary infliction of it. It is an infringement on your rights. Like no one's debating that. I don't think, um, the question of course is like, whose rights are more important, my right for freedom from dying or your right to kill me. Like, you know, those are different issues, but, um, The question, of course, is like it's this is I think in some ways there's extremes of problems that we've already been facing and will continue to face like as a as a as a kind of culture. Right. Like we're going to have to deal with um, our ability to react to or make, you know, make hard decisions as a society or not.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, in my weird brain, you've just made the argument that anyone who wears a mask is already a transhumanist because they are making decisions based on the past for the future that <laughs> alter the genetics of yep. our race, right? Because some people will survive and some people will not. And unfortunately, it's not as straightforward as the people who don't wear masks will die, right? They will also infect other people. But like, this situation will have a genuine impact on who makes it into our next generations and what choices they make and what they teach their children. And that's a really clunky, non-exciting, non-sci-fi type of transhumanism, but it's probably still transhumanism in
0: a way. Yeah. It, I, well, yeah, because like, I think of it like, well, you, you're, you're, your human organism, your biology, is not equipped to handle um, COVID-19 particularly well until it's had a couple of um, run-ins with it and builds up antibodies. And in order to get around that biological weakness, I guess, you have to wear a mask, which provides much better filtration than the hairs in your nose does. Mm-hmm. Or do. The hairs hairs do. <laughs> hairs plural <laughs> do. Um Uh, And so you're essentially like, I mean, what's a respirator? It's just a better version of the lungs than you were born with.
3: Very dense nose hairs. That's our new definition for a mask.
0: Very dense nose hairs. Super dense (laughs) nose hairs. Um, uh, I wanted to make the point that um, there's a number of philosophers in transhumanism that argue that we have an ethical imperative to strive for progress and improve the human condition. Um, and that it's desirable for humanity to pursue transhumanism. And then there's also people who say it's desirable, nothing it's absolutely imperative. It's uh, it's essential to the continued existence of whoever we are now that we take matters into our own hands and, practice deliberate directed evolution to get around the looming problems in our future. Um, And Ray Kurzweil, whose name comes up all over the place um, (laughs) and, and who is like, Oh, the technological singularity um, has, has advocate, has basically said like at some point machines and people are going to merge in such a way that, um, it's it's a, a there's no differentiation anymore there's a guy named Bostrom uh who has written about all kinds of different existential threats and risks to humanity's future um including emerging technologies who has a a less sort of positive view <laughs> of um humanity survival when it's tied to emerging technologies and uh one of Stephen Hawking's explanations for the fermi paradox involves a continuation of that sort of thinking like yeah this may not actually be that great for us so some people are like this is going to probably be good other people are like it, we, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad we have no choice and then there's other people who are like well this actually this may be not be such a good idea after all um which is kind of funny like it just there is not there's not a lot of consensus <laughs> okay. no Find entertaining
3: um, and I don't think there's going to be, I hate to say it, I think in my imaginary world where we all upload our consciousnesses and, you know, shoot off into space before the meteor hits, uh, some percentage of humanity insists that there is no meteor and they're either proven right and get to stay on Earth as they are or obliterated <laughs> and we won't know which.
1: That's
0: right. a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So we are at uh, an hour and 12 minutes, and we've made it through the first two sections that I had sort of outlined. The <laughs> Fantastic. next two are yeah. empathic fallibility and, con- and um, conversational consent and ethics. And there we could probably go on for quite some time about those two. And so I'm wondering if we should just do a transhumanism four and move that over to the next discussion.
2: I, I, I think that's probably a good idea. Um, if yeah. you do have a few more minutes, though, you did bring up the Fermi paradox, which I feel like you can't just drop that and not at least mention yes. what that's about. Um,
0: okay. Do you want to because you probably are because you're so interested in it. You probably have specific things that you want said about it.
2: I well I know about it. Um, I don't I don't want to say I have a lot of things to say about it. I just wanted to at least say what it is and then if you have if you guys have more to contribute by all means. Uh, okay.
0: Um, um, Yeah. I mean I can't did you, do you want me to like read the actual definition
2: yes yeah that'd be perfect yeah
0: okay so there was uh there was is a physicist uh enrico fermi and um he the this paradox that he outlined is named after him and it's the contradiction between the lack of evidence for extraterrestrial civilizations and the various high estimates for their probability so um they have some bullet points here. The following are some of the facts that together serve to highlight the apparent contradiction. There are billions of stars in the Milky Way, similar to the sun with high probability. Some of these stars have earth-like planets. Many of these stars and hence their planets are much older than the sun. If the earth is typical, some may have developed intelligent life long ago, i.e. before us, because they've been around longer and they're very similar to us. Some of these civilizations may have developed interstellar travel, Uh, a step that we are currently investigating towards. Yes, we're currently investigating. And the slow pace of currently envisioned interstellar travel, the Milky Way galaxy could be completely traversed in a few million years and since many of the stars similar to the sun are billions of years older, the Earth should have already been visited by extraterrestrials or their probes and there's no convincing evidence that this happened. What the fuck is going on? Where is everybody? Where is everybody is (laughs) kind of like the point. Like, we can't be the only ones like us because there's just way too many other things out there that appear like us. And yet we haven't found anything like us, which seems statistically impossible given the amount of shit that's out there.
2: Right. Um, right.
0: So yeah. Did I do it? Is that satisfactory?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. I just think that's, um, I think that's important. Uh, I, I'm not exactly, I, I mean, there's lots of ways I can tie that into the discussion of transhumanism, yeah. but I just think it's an, I, it's a really interesting um, thing I to think, think that- about.
0: I yep. I I largely remain unconcerned and disinterested in Fermi's paradox because I don't think I don't think that the variables that are given priority in that paradox are really reflective of how things are and so it like I mean a little while very very not so long ago we didn't even have Penicillin and we didn't understand That like nuking your fucking Intestines with antibiotics is actually Really bad for you because it kills off a bunch of stuff that you Need to survive because you are not a Sterile thing inside of you Right. <laughs> and ideas of cleanliness And purity are bullshit And so like we don't even what, how How do we know there aren't other People and intelligent life forms out there We didn't even know that there were life forms Inside of us until Like really fucking recently Um and so it's like I just think this is a matter of not really understanding the context of what we should be looking for. And less that well it looks to me like we're the only people out here, we're super special. You know. I don't know. I, I just think that think that there is
3: still an argument to be made that we should be able to see some evidence of someone doing something for lack of a better word, unnatural, right? Like even if Mm -hmm. it was, even if they weren't doing what we were doing to get to space or exist or communicate across long distances, the fact that everything we see out there can be explained by gravity and chemistry and physics Mm -hmm. is a little bit weird, given that you would expect some population of someone to be able to mess with things in a detectable manner. So I'm not sure that the argument that you're making gets us all the way to Mm -hmm. like not not feeling like that paradox is a is as significant of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But for sure, the more narrowly we define signs of life, the less likely we are to find them.
0: Right. Like, okay. so what I, I guess an example of this would be like if you're listening for a whale's heartbeat and it only comes once every like however many seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And you're listening for a mouse's heartbeat, the rate of like change from one to the other, like how, if, if what you're expecting is a space of time between heartbeats of a mouse and you look and you're like, nope, nope, still no heartbeat. Nope. And you look and your, your rate of checking against another, phenomenon is like to the intervals are too short you'll mm-hmm. just miss the bus yeah and yeah. so like how long have we been looking for other people out there how long have we even had the capability to look for other people out there and are we just in between heartbeats
3: yeah and that's a really good question um just real quick to um close some of the loops earlier mm-hmm. um if anyone's wondering meg was uh was listing the was quoting the wikipedia article on the fermi paradox yes um and then fermi died in 1954 and if you've heard his name uh there's a um there's an element named after him he was part of the manhattan project he's a super fascinating dude all around and you should read more
2: yeah i and knows
3: way
0: more than i do about looking for shit in space
2: (laughs) also um i just wanted to i i think to answer, Meg, your maybe implied question earlier of what I might have to say about the Fermi paradox is that, yeah. um, I often use it to point to when people want to talk about the existence or non-existence of extraterrestrial life because it is a very good central focal point for that discussion because there's lots of discussion about it and research that's gone into it. And I often Mm -hmm. find people have thought about it a little bit but haven't realized how much people have already thought about the problem. And you can save Ah. yourself a lot of time and energy by at least making yourself familiar with where people have thought and what conclusions they've drawn from that so that you can start from a place of like educating yourself. Um, I've read a little bit about it. I'm not super up to snuff on all of it, Um, mm -hmm. but I do think it's um, it's just sparked so much discussion that it's a good place if, If all you can remember is Fermi paradox, the next time you start thinking about space aliens, that's a great place to Google and start from Is my point, like not so much um, that I that I have any answers either. Like, I think I kind of, you know, find it all very fascinating.
3: I also really love it because talking about like critical thinking and common sense, it's a really nice example of that not being as simple as we think, right? Because we can apply really excellent critical thinking and come up with a bunch of reasons why we probably aren't the only intelligent life. But at the end of the day, common sense comes in and goes, wait a minute, where are they? And now we have this kind of fascinating paradox that comes from two Equally brilliant, equally reasonable approaches to the world, right? Like it yep. really is
0: not as simple yes.
3: as if we all just thought logically we would all agree with each other all the time,
1: right? Yes, <laughs>
0: right. Yes. <laughs> totally. Uh, um, go ahead. You were, you were Oh, about I was going to
2: say um, the way that I was going to kind of tie this to transhumanism comes back to our idea about how we currently define species biologically um, mm-hmm. from a science biological science sort of standpoint. And if there were um, a alien species or an ex like an extraterrestrial species that existed, that was maybe, um, you know, let's just say as advanced as more advanced than us doesn't really matter. My point being is that um, they would be a separate species, but then that comes into the problem of species issues where if we have so much control over our biology and let's say they share a common biological sort of fundamental, like, um, you know, their, their DNA, their biological processes are similar. So, um, you know, then, then in theory we could meet in the middle and create, you know, and have viable offspring with them, right? Like as a sort of as Mm -hmm. a species, because we could both agree that we're going to evolutionally, evolutionarily move a biological line of ours together and, and potentially create biological offspring. Um, So that's why I it's a weird way to put it. I I feel like I don't my interest isn't like in that it's more just in highlighting the idea that um, it's so fungible that idea of like how we currently define species, because as Mm -hmm. we move closer and closer to our own, like being masters of our own biology, um, that definition starts to fall apart when you can really like fundamentally change the nature of your existence, like in real time. Or, you know, yes. in, in a single person's lifetime, like one individual, like there was a time where we were talking about, it, it's like, okay, you know, with, um, you know, Mandel's peapods or is it Mandel's peapods? What's his name? Um, what's the yes. big, yeah. um,
0: um, um, hang on, I'm going to, Gregor Mandel, wasn't it?
2: Yes. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, that was, that's kind of an experiment in, um, in sort of plant, uh, what's it called? Um,
0: he was kind of adorable.
2: Yes, Um.
0: (laughs) he was. He's got these little tiny spectacles and this sort of like dapper combed hair. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Mendelian inheritance.
1: Um, I
3: highly recommend, by the way, that any listener who can just Google the things that we talk about or more specifically do a Wikipedia search for the things that we talk about yeah. as they listen. You will know exactly what pictures we're looking at. You will yep. know exactly yes. which articles we're quoting from. Like, yeah, it's a super handy uh, resource to go along with this podcast. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So
0: most of the, most uh, of our stuff comes from Wikipedia just because it's like so easy.
3: Yes, but the super adorable picture is the picture of yes. the right reverend Gregor yes. Mendel in yes. his
0: Wikipedia article, which yes. will have
3: no context for anyone if they don't realize that. No, <laughs> right? it's That's it's true. definitely
2: it's fantastic. <laughs> um, anyway, my point being is that, uh, you know, his experiments in plant hybridization is a genetic experiment that, um, you know, are mul- like our our modern day gene experiments are very different um, or but they are you know, they draw their lineage from that. And we've been doing this as humans, like since domestication, right. Since we've domesticated, um, crops and food sources. Um, and so I forget where I was going with this anyway, doesn't matter. My point just being is that as we get more and more control over biology and our own like natural world around us, a lot of these things really like blur together, I think.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Or absolutely. The di- or the things that we established as arbitrary dividing lines that categorize one thing on this side versus another thing on another side become meaningless and yeah. just dissolve. Like the maybe the problem of us trying to figure out how species like differentiates it it becomes like meaningless or just moot because it's a it's an old way of thinking about things that doesn't apply anymore mm-hmm. in the future. Um yeah, I can I mean, I just I can think of like the first thing that pops to mind that I would think of as sort of an analog is like how within our lifetimes, the idea, at least in America, of like what gender is, has become less binary. And so like trying to arbitrarily categorize something as male or female starts to lose its um, meaning and value after a while. And mm-hmm. uh, and we've reclassified or recategorized or reassigned meaning to things that are maybe adjacent to or extend beyond what our previous conceptions were because there's new detail. Some new shit has come to light, man.
3: (laughs) And yet people are so set in their ways and so reluctant to accept the new information Mm -hmm. and so hesitant Uh to change how they name things.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, that brings up an interesting thought I've had, which is to say that... Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very easy for people to see how if I wanted to inflict on you genetic change, if I wanted to say, Hey, your genes now have to be different. I want to change them. Um, Mm -hmm. like that's definitely a violation of your sort of individual autonomy. Um, I also kind of have some understanding. I'm not saying like, I also think about in terms of like your state of mind, like do I have autonomy? Like the ability to like, say, um, Or I should say like inflicting knowledge on people is a kind of that at some point if we get down to the point where we define individuals as just a culmination of their thoughts and ideas if we ever reach Mm -hmm. a point where we're able to really remove ourselves from the physical world in a way like dependence on the physical world in that way, where you can more like sort of ephemerally move through space in a way that's like, you know, I can choose to have physical form this day and next day I'm going to just spend most of my time being a cloud or whatever. But, um, you know, like, (laughs) like my point being is that if it's more a matter of just like we are this culmination of our experiences and our thoughts and our minds, like, um, I start to have some sympathy for the fear of people telling me and giving me information that causes me to think and be different. Yes. Um, and so I see what you're saying. I I have some sympathy or maybe a little bit of empathy for that. Um, that state of being right where it's like, you don't want things to change. It's like, don't change my mind. I don't want to be that way. I want to continue to live in the box that I've created for myself. Mm-hmm. And you keep coming over here and smashing it open and making me look at the sun and it burns me and I'm trying yeah. to put the sunscreen on and you keep taking it, you know, um, obviously there's issues with that because part of it is like, we're not trying to police people's thoughts. Like I think we, I think, um, oftentimes like people are motivated to get people to be educated. We're not looking to change their, um, their personal views so much as we are looking to like help them survive better in the world. And we think have a better life, but that again is a moral judgment
1: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um. that, you know, who knows, but oftentimes it's more, it's more fundamental than that. It's like, look, just stop fucking infringing on my rights. Like you establishing that box for yourself inherently means that you have to inflict on everyone else, this state of mind so that they can continue to behave the way you want Mm-hmm. Right. Which is the real issue. But um anyway. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's uh anyway, I think I think we've We
0: Yeah, we're doing really important work here. Yeah, I
2: think we've done a good job <laughs> and I think this is a, a very long one. Um this is uh, did good, you though. guys did you guys have more uh do you folks have more to add?
0: I'm good. Okay. the, the last detail that I didn't cover that is Included right before the section on empathic fallibility and conversational consent is the distinction that people presume that transhumanists are all trying to become immortal vampires, which is not necessarily the case at all. And that uh, (laughs) there was a um, this this really fascinates me. I'm going to look this up. The managing director. For the Institute for Ethics in Emerging Technologies was a man named Hank Polissier, and he was the director from 2011 to 2012. And he uh, surveyed people who self-applied the, the label transhumanist and found that 23.8% of the 818 respondents did not want immortality Uh, Some of the reasons argued against it were boredom, overpopulation, and the desire to go on to an afterlife, which is interesting because it's interesting to think that people who, like, uh, not that I think there needs to be a conflict here, but it's interesting to me that of the people who don't want immortality via transhumanism, their reasons were so different, like boredom, I don't, (laughs) I mean... Boredom would not be one of the things that I was worried about first, um, personally. Overpopulation is an interesting one. Or the desire to go on to an afterlife, I find, like, really interesting when you intersect that with the things that usually inform transhumanism. I thought that one was really interesting. So I want to read more about that if I can figure it out at the... I'll follow the footnotes um, and see if I can figure out what... If there was more information on what those people said, but...
3: I'm just going to real quick say mm-hmm. I think it's easier to refuse something that we haven't mastered yet.
1: Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I
3: think it's quite possible that some of the people who say now that they wouldn't go for it might make a different decision if they had, like, I don't know, just been given a diagnosis that indicated when they would die or what they would die of. Yeah. <laughs> so, I I do think that it's super interesting data and I'd love to discuss it in like a future episode or at some other point. I know we're Mm -hmm. wrapping up. Um, But I also think it's entirely possible that that survey, that those survey responses would look really different if we were discussing a thing that we were capable
0: of doing. Totally. That's such a good point.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I, that makes me think of um, in one of my psych classes in college, there was uh, some discussion about the morality of, of being immortal And um, I was in favor of having, you know, having the choice of immortality and, um, and people were really like everyone in the class was like really upset about and they were like, well, it's unnatural (laughs) and you just like, you want to live forever. Like it sounds miserable. And I was like, I, that my point was, I don't want to live forever. And it really changed the discussion when I pointed out that I'm not asking to live forever. I'm asking to have the choice of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is very different. The choice to choose when you end your own life is very different than saying you're condemned to live forever or you're condemned to die at some random point um, mm-hmm. yeah. but having the choice between those two changes everything and a lot more people were like well hang on now I want to change my answer because I didn't realize <laughs> you know because they've already put yeah. a lot of their own precondition into it um, mm-hmm. you know and obviously I'm like if you're saying the condition is I either live forever which means that my entire existence never changes and I am the way I am from now to eternity obviously I would not choose that yeah. um, that's Same. insane but <laughs> you know, there's a middle ground if we're discussing this other option that sounds way more appealing. Um There's
3: also and I think at this point we're talking about like total sci-fi territory. Sure. Yeah. But do you mean I cannot die and I will exist forever? Right. Or God. do you mean I do not have to live a natural lifespan? Because exactly. One yes. of those sounds a lot more
0: appealing than the other.
3: <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, as soon
0: as you said that, like cannot die, I just pictured me like Somehow weirdly existing as just like a body floating in space after the earth implodes or something. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. out here in the blackness all by myself forever that. Okay. So now all of a sudden the boredom aspect of not wanting this suddenly makes sense to
3: me.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say boredom actually would figure pretty high on my list. Um, I, I think that overpopulation ranks highest on my list of concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, but the logistics of trying to be immortal without getting caught being immortal without dying of boredom and living dying without being very bored without dying, uh, living by yourself on a mountain somewhere get really complicated.
1: Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's. Oh, so that, oh go ahead.
0: I, I, that's that's just super funny.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um yeah, I mean there's whole discussions about that and maybe we should save that for another podcast cuz there's um the ethics of of bringing another another being into existence it's a whole a whole thing um yes. that I think a lot of people just take for granted as perfectly natural and normal um
0: Yeah There's a lot of you, I'll never say it straight to your face, but I disagree with your choices. (laughs) (laughs) And can I
3: put a pin on something that uh, I'd love to revisit at some point, but also we really do need to wrap up? Yeah. Um, It occurred to me that in uh, some ways, if we assume that the choices we make make us stronger or weaker human beings, um, you can make a bunch of really interesting arguments about whether procreating makes you stronger or weaker. Because yeah. on the one hand it makes your genes more likely to propagate, on the other hand it means that you're multitasking and that your focus is no longer on your own survival. Right. So yeah. uh, that that popped up to me as something really interesting is like if yeah. I had chosen to have kids, I there would be decisions that I wouldn't be able to make or that I would have a harder time making yep. that uh would feel very different. And I think that that ties in in some really interesting ways around like is a transhumanist making improvements to the species or to the culture or are they making improvements to themselves as an individual
2: right right yeah and that's that's part of the maybe we'll get into that in uh transhumanism four because we'll be able to talk about specific um thoughts on on those things um yeah all right so to wrap up we need to do the color of the day um (gasps) So, oh my
1: god! Oh my god!
2: I oh know. Uh, oh I went. I'm. I'm very excited about this one. So our color choosing team um, put this one together, and I just got it on my desk. So, uh, okay, great. The color of the day is, uh, and I'll throw it in the um, chat momentarily. It's science blue, and science the values blue. for science blue are um, uh, RGB values. So zero one zero two two zero four, um, and this color is. Let me put it in the chat and see if I can share with you guys um here we go i
0: can't wait to see it i can't wait
1: to see it uh
2: so this color obviously um you know one of the reasons we chose this color is to kind of highlight science uh for this day which is important um this color is obviously going to fix a lot of things in your life and if you wear this color you're gonna you know really improve your lifestyle and your your intelligence and all of the things. It's basically going to loft you up into the stratospheres of transhumanism just by having this color, um, wearing mm-hmm. this color on this day. So It's
0: inevitable. It's a it's shortcut.
2: Inevitable. Yes. <laughs> anyway, you, because we're a design podcast, we obviously focus and result, revolve around graphic or uh, art and design, and so color right. is a very important part of that. And yes. having a color of the day obviously signifies our um, legitimacy in that space. So Anyway, uh, hopefully you guys are able to look at this color. How would you describe this?
0: Um, I would describe it as IBM Blue.
2: IBM, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Although yeah. I
0: think IBM Blue would technically be a custom Pantone color. Probably. Because it's a corporate color. So yeah. So I would say that this color is very much like Pantone's IBM Blue, except maybe just a little better.
1: Just a little better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> In some intangible sciency blue way uh-huh maybe maybe the specificity of this color is what makes it gives it a competitive edge over the other blue uh the other color design blue um it looks like when you launch when you watch a rocket launch And it gets up there to the point where it's going like pretty fast and you're looking at it further and further away. And so the shade of blue sky that you're zoning, you're zooming in on is darker and darker and darker because it's getting closer and closer to space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so like this is not ground level rocket launch. This is like the midpoint between like, oh, that rocket just took off and oh, that rocket's in orbit. It's like dark sky blue
2: yeah really clear high altitude blue mm-hmm.
0: i was thinking
3: it's that color where if you're like drawing something quickly in ms paint and you make your your green ground a little too green and your blue sky a little too
0: blue
2: uh-huh yes. it's yes. it's that blue
0: it's that yeah. blue yeah
2: that's a good one yeah yeah
0: yeah the one it's where not- you're... Your Our teacher's like, you're supposed to mix the colors, not just use them right out of the tube. Totally. <laughs>
3: or where someone's like, you know that the sky is never actually that color and the grass is never actually yeah. that color. And you you answer, like, you are not wrong.
0: And yet everyone knows that that is sky and that
3: is ground. Yes, so yes. I've done yes. my job.
0: <laughs> oh, that's such a good point. That's like such a weird thing. Um, like such a weird philosophical concept, actually. Yeah. Like, yeah. That... It, everybody thinks of the same thing even though our experience of the same thing is not the same as each other and is also not the same as the thing that's making us think of the thing we're all thinking of. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.
2: I think that's... Yeah, we will leave our
0: listeners
3: to uncross their eyes. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> I, I actually, I want to quote that as like a good definition of art.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've just accidentally invented like the most comprehensive
2: definition (laughs) of art. art. Maybe we can do a whole sub uh, short podcast on that at some point. Anyway, um, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, As we have been trying to mention, we do love hearing from you, and you can contact us at. um, You can email Dana actually, who's been acting as our executive assistant, though quickly becoming a a regular co-host. I
3: still like emails. You can still email me.
2: Yeah, so please. I still like
3: being your executive assistant, too.
2: Yay! Okay, well, you can wear two hats. Um, we'll double <laughs> your pay. So you got that oh, to look forward to. Yes.
0: And <laughs> excellent. We'll pay yeah. you on a, on one of those rolls. We'll pay you on the 15th and the 31st of every month, except for months that don't have 31. We'll pay you on the 30th or the 29th or the 28th, depending. And then the other paycheck is every other Friday. So
2: yes.
3: Ooh, well, so, I'm holding yeah. you to that. I, I like that idea. Absolutely. As as so
2: how you can email us, you can email Dana. So D-A-N-A at fcbm.io. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. Whatever you have to say, mm-hmm. um, Dana will get that taken care of and get you off to the right department if you have questions or you have comments. Right. Okay. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks, Thank you. Okay, bye.